Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Daniel Bove, a practitioner with a wealth of experience supporting multiple NBA teams, who is currently the Director of Performance and Sports Science at the New Orleans Pelicans in the NBA. Daniel has just released a brilliant book called The Quadrant System, Navigating Stress in Team Sport, which will make up a large part of today's conversation. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Annie McDonald, and here is today's episode with Daniel Bove. Daniel, welcome to the show, mate. It's uh, it's great to have you on. Hey, Andy, thank you so much for having me on. I'm uh, humbled that you would uh, you'd bring me on here to, to talk a little bit about performance, man. Appreciate it. No, of course. Um, just to begin with, just in case any of the listeners haven't come across you just yet in their careers, would you be able to kind of outline, uh, I guess, your roots into the performance industry? And then maybe if you can kind of tell your story and bring us up to the current day. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so I started out, uh, I went to Penn State University for undergrad. I got my uh, bachelor's degree in kinesiology. And then, um, you know, along the way in getting that degree, I, I, I had a weird um kind of change from, you know, wanting to be a strength conditioning coach uh, working in athletics to actually, I jumped into the CrossFit realm for, for a little bit and I am from Philadelphia. Um, so I, after college moved back to Philadelphia, working at a, uh, a CrossFit center city gym in, in Philly. And after a few years working there and, and really developing as a coach, um, I left there for university of South Florida, where I did my master's. In, uh, in exercise science. Then I, after, after I graduated there, um, I was hired by the Atlanta Hawks as an assistant strength conditioning coach and applied sports scientist. So spent a few seasons with them. And then uh, I got my first director of performance job with the Phoenix Suns after that. I spent a few seasons there. And then uh, when my uh, the guy who brought me to Phoenix, Aaron Nelson, um, who's my current boss, he actually left for New Orleans the Pelicans. I joined him uh, in his move, and now I'm the director of performance for the New Orleans Pelicans, which is an NBA team. Very cool. Um, and you know, one of the reasons I got you on uh, the podcast today, especially as you've just put together uh, or just written a book called "The Quadrant System: Navigating Stress in Team Sport." At the at the kind of conception of the idea, what were the the problems or the questions you were you were maybe asking yourself? to, to motivate the need for writing this book or, or kind of body of work? Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely, there's some big reasons why I think when you work in team sport and especially in a, in a league like the NBA where you're playing 82 games per, per season, and that's not including, you know, you play four or five in the right in the preseason, then you play, you know, if you make the postseason, you might play 20 games. So it's a ton of, uh, it's a ton of games you're playing and it's chaotic in nature. You're traveling a ton. Um, games are different hours of the day. You know, you're obviously changing time zones a lot. Um, you have a lot of people involved in the process, so it gets chaotic. And 
in when you're when you're really developing a system for how you operate, how you program, how you not only program strength conditioning, but how you program stress on the court uh, or in the sport itself. Um, you really, because of the chaos, you really start to really map out like what your principles are and what are like those guiding lights when, when chaos and unpredictability is really high. So you start to develop your system and, you know, simplicity really helps you out in chaos as long as you're not like losing out on some of the nuance. So that's really where it, it originated. And then on top of that, I think like another layer to that was, you know, in when you're working in a, a sport like professional basketball, obviously stress levels are super high on the body and you're always trying to collaborate with the coaching staff, like the, the technical coaches uh, who coach the sport. You're trying to you're trying to communicate with them in, in a way that, you know, everyone's on the same page when it comes to dosing athletes with specific stressors or maybe pulling back at certain times and trying to remain on the same page. And the quadrant system was really, uh, in my opinion, it was really what allowed me to collaborate and, and talk shop and um, just use the same language when you're talking about uh, stress in general. Hmm. And I've got no doubt as a coach, you've been, um, you've probably been using whiteboards and like everybody else, drawing diagrams and writing things down for years to get your thoughts out there. Uh, how how long how long have you been kind of putting this book together for? Well, yeah. So like, um, I love drawing on a whiteboard. <laughs> I uh, well, it's actually funny. Uh, so when I when I some pe- people cl- who are close to me know this, but when I went into undergrad, I was an art major. Um, I was an art major for like my first you know semester or two, and uh, so I've always been obsessed with visuals. Um, and that's kind of that's you know, that's always how I've learned. It's always how I've communicated ideas has always been visual. And when it comes to the quadrant system, getting back to your question, how long I kind of been doing this, uh, I actually started in, I think my first year in Atlanta, when, you know, I was kind of in charge of our um, accelerometer and our our LPS data, all that that we were using. I, um, I needed ways to communicate these ideas by, you know, plotting athletes, not only plotting the team, but then also plotting like, you know, over time comparing certain dates and certain game days. And I, I just found the easiest way to communicate with, with coaches um, and to show them like, like the magnitudes of certain differences in the data was actually using just like scatter plots. So I started using scatter plots and then I realized, you know, you know, sectioning and often quadrants was, it was a real easy way to chunk ideas and, uh, really, I guess you would call it classification or like cluster analysis uh, to a certain extent, but it was a way of uh, explaining to coaches who maybe aren't as data savvy or really don't understand numbers as, as well, because that's not what they do. Like they're doing something completely different. Um, but when I'm talking to them about loads and speeds and, you know, jumps, perhaps like plotting it and showing them differences there is always a good visual. And it kind of, it kind of grew from there into just a communication tool. And then um, you know, I kind of ran with it and, you know, started experimenting it with it like late in Atlanta. And then, uh, in my Phoenix days with actually my, my head strength coach, uh, Corey Schlesinger was really influential for me, um, in getting the system to be practical and, and a way to, to use it and, um, make it work in the environment. So, you know, I, th- I thank Corey for helping me out, but, uh, but yeah, that's, um, that's kind of how it came, came to be. So it's, I say like a five-year process. 
Yeah, no doubt that was pretty challenging at times uh, with MBA life and being on the road a lot, trying to squeeze in, uh, you know, concentrated time and hours to write. Yeah, it's, it's you know, however, um, you know, I, I have two children at home and um, my wife's been great through this process, but I tried my best to write when I'm on the road. We're on the road so much. And this, this past COVID year was great for, for me just because when I was on the road, um, we actually weren't allowed based on protocols. There was a lot of times we weren't allowed to leave the, the room or the hotel. You could leave your room, but you weren't really allowed off the premises of the hotel. Um, so it gave me a ton of time to work on projects like this and be productive. So I, I uh, well, it was a, it was a, you know, crappy time in general, like being in the pandemic, uh, I tried to make the most of it. And that's, that's another reason why this book was able to, to kind of come to light. Yeah, no, no, good job. Um, to kind of throw this conversation into the deep end, can we, uh, set the scene by maybe getting you to explain uh, consolidation versus non-consolidation models in the in the context of kind of scheduling work and recovery because I think this is a really nice uh, part of the book and I think it'll be useful to a lot of people to hear it um, or revisit it at least. Sure, yeah. The um, I think you know the consolidation of these stresses, as I said earlier, that that was one of the main reasons that I put this together and. I guess when you're looking at a non-consolidated approach, what that looks like is I always see that in my profession with, with strength conditioning coaches or physical prep coaches that are really just trying to validate their job by, you know, inserting training and especially the training they like, which, I mean, let's be honest, there's a lot of meatheads in our, in our profession. I'm one of them (laughs) or definitely used to be one of them. And I still like to lift heavy weights, but, uh, you know, just, you know, fitting in really stressful strength strength and conditioning sessions between contests when you have a really like high frequency schedule, like, you know, NBA teams do, um, I think it can be counterproductive. And when you do that, when you, when you try to insert training too much around competition, at least training that's, you know, really stressful, which I argue like things like, you know, low velocity, uh, general strength training, I think does tax guys in between contests. Um, I think you you're losing out on improving performance, but I think you know you increase monotony and can actually drive some some negative responses. So, you know, cons- by consolidating stress, you know, I I think I posted something uh, today uh, that where I was talking about like lifting on game days is one of the the things that we like to do, and you know, post game that's one of the best times for us to lift. I mean, if we have 82 regular season games, those are a ton of times when stress is high and we can actually train the body um, to consolidate hard days and basically make hard days hard and easy days easy. And then the days that they have to recover are actually meant to be recovery days. They're not meant to come in and and sling weights around. How would you, you know, I'm sure there'll be somebody that doesn't work in America listening who the obvious question on their mind will be, how do you kind of sell uh, the players on completing one of their heavier sort of physical prep sessions on game day. Um, you know, how do you do that for maybe the reluctant athlete? You know what? This is such a good question. And what's funny about this, Andy, is I don't have to convince them very much at all. It, the, these guys, these guys in the NBA have really good feel for their bodies. And they're very, most of them, not all of them, but most of them understand like, if I, today's a game day, today's my work day, I'm going to work my ass off. And then tomorrow I get the rest. And if, as long as you communicate that to them and you're able to kind of forecast the week and show them ahead of time, like, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. Like tomorrow is completely off or tomorrow is going to be an easy day. And 
maybe it's a quadrant two, which if you read the book, you know, quadrant two is a high repetition or a high time under tension day, but the intensity is maybe a little bit lower. Um, you communicate those type of things to them and then they actually buy in really, really easily. But, uh, and I don't know if it's cultural or if it's, you know, just them knowing their bodies, but most of the players I've worked with all prefer to lift after games. And I think it's their body kind of knowing what to do, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, that does make sense. Um, if, you know, if non-consolidate, non-consolidated schedules can cause uh, plateaus and maybe sometimes less adaptation in comparison to a consolidated system, how do you, you know, how do you go about monitoring or gaining indications that the athlete in front of you is adapting the way you want them to um, and maybe recovering versus heading into, let's call it like a physiological hole, to put it nicely? Yeah, I, you know, when I first, when I first started out, um, I tried to monitor everything. I, I tried, you know, to measure every single thing that I could possibly do. And then, you know, I think after a few years of realizing like what like my big rocks were, um, you know, I was able to pare that down a little bit. I've been, I've been, I mean, we have, we have our big rocks. Like I, I love VBT and, and I mentioned that in the book as, as a great way to, to measure, um, not only give you training zones, but you really can measure progress with, with a velocity based training. Um, you know, so I, I talk about that a little bit in the book, but then, uh, you know, I, I like the force plate, I think for this, this athlete, I think, uh, the counter movement jump is a, is a great tool to monitor not only, you know, readiness and all of that, but also, um, improvements in, you know, lower body, lower body power and, and, uh, force output. So, you know, the force plate is something we, we definitely use, uh, multiple times per week. And then, um, obviously VBT and then, you know, subjectively, you know, it's, it's kind of cliche, but like, you know, just being able to communicate and know your athletes and you spend so much time with these guys in an 82 game season, you're, you're with them more than you're with your family. And, you do as long as you're you're out there on the floor and you're communicating and you're talking to all of them uh and you see their body language and you see how they're you know how they're playing their sport <laughs> that's probably the best one right it's like the best monitoring strategy is to say like what's going on between the lines what's going on on the court so um you definitely develop a sense for where everybody's at on a given day whether it's objective or subjective you just you definitely have a compass for that so um does that answer your question yeah, no, it does. Yeah, um, I think is I think probably the obvious thing to ask you to do is would you would you mind explaining the quadrants? Um, and I don't I don't want you to steal too much from your own book, but um, if you're comfortable, would you mind you know kind of giving people an outline of how those quadrants work? Oh no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I uh, so the you know the when we were developing the quadrant system, I really did it in a way. I I tried to come up with like what are the two most important like building blocks. Uh, when you're looking at the training process, both on the court and in the weight room and, you know, volume and intensity are like, you know, when you're learning, uh, from when I remember learning about strength conditioning, when I was first starting, uh, you know, reading like starting strength and, you know, Verkashansky, all that stuff, um, volume intensity are kind of king, right? Like, and that's where it all starts from. And, you know, sets, reps, weight, right? And it's the same on the court as it is in the weight room. And what I wanted to do there was set the the X and Y axes as both volume and intensity. So in the book, um, the Y axis is actually, uh, it's volume. And then the X axis is uh, intensity. So that gives us obviously four quadrants, if you have a visual. Um, and 
and that gives you four different uh, types of days that you can have on any given day. So, you know, quadrant four would be high intensity, high volume. So that's the upper right. And then the lower right, right quadrant would be a quadrant three. Okay, that's going to be a high intensity, low volume. Uh, quadrant two is going to be upper left corner, and that's going to be uh, high volume, low intensity. And then last but not least, there's a quadrant one, which is our recovery quadrant. And that's low intensity, low volume. And that tends to be, you know, your normal rest day or walkthrough or, or what, what have you. But um, based on those four quadrants, the, the quadrant system, what I try to do in my environment is isolate like, okay, what are the attributes from a physical preparation standpoint in the weight room with me? What am I trying to hit on that given day based on what I'm seeing on the sport? So I start with the sport uh, and then I work backwards from there. So for instance, you know, let's say on a game day, in in professional basketball let's say you know there's a walkthrough in the morning that's 60 minutes to 90 minutes of you know a little bit of skill work but also prepping for the team that you're about to play Uh, guys are getting shots up Um, guys are on their feet decent amount of volume and then you get to the you get to the court later that day they have their pregame routine their warm-ups everything they probably have 30 to 40 minutes before the game even starts where they're on their feet on the court working and then they play, right? So then starters are playing anywhere 30 to 35 minutes. That's a high intensity day. And it's also high volume based on um, those measures. So um, that would be in a quadrant four and that's kind of where I work. And then because it's a quadrant four, it's high intensity, high, high volume. I, I then, you know, based on the athletes I've worked with and how they perceive stress and how they perceive training, um, at least my population has always kind of considered low velocity, heavy strength training to be, um, you know, the, the most high, highly fatiguing, highly, uh, stressful, uh, version. So I've placed strength and low velocity training in four, and then that's kind of how it's all, how it's all been developed. You know, I think quite often we crudely try and, uh, bucket or phenotype, if we call it that athletes where we you know we might describe one athlete as being uh, perhaps twitchy and a bit you know more um, springy and fast twitch and we might have an athlete that's uh, you know a little bit slower a lot stronger more kind of just raw um, more strength kind of uh, uh, under the hood Um, have you ever kind of had to consider you know let's say phenotyping and how that affects um, where the athlete how or how the athlete interacts with the quadrant system yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's these guys, especially the veterans. I mean, they know their bodies. Um, they know what, what sets them up to succeed and what might, you know, hinder them in coming days. So like, um, I think when you're bucketing these guys, like you're always taking into account, like how, what individual responses look like. And sometimes you develop that over time, you'll start to see like, you know, maybe, uh, I was talking to someone the other day about this, like, uh, for instance, you know, I, we talk about overcoming isometrics on quadrant threes and four days and overcoming isometrics for those you don't know, listening, like, you know, that's basically just pushing or pulling into an immovable object. So like really nothing, no one's moving, but there's a ton of contraction going on high forces. Um, those are great ways to potentiate the athlete, um, before competition or before training or during training, right? It's also a great way to, to strength train. <laughs> um, you know, I have some guys who maybe aren't as skilled and they don't need as much fine motor patterning when they play. Um, 
they might actually do really well with post-activation potentiation before a contest. Maybe that helps them get them amped up. It helps potentiate them. But then you have other athletes, maybe like, you know, if you have a, a point guard or a shooting guard who relies really heavily on that fine motor component, you could actually hinder them by, you know, potentiating them and then everything's off. Their timing's off. They're kind of jumpy, um, if that makes sense. I, so you definitely develop a sense for like who needs what. And um, it's a combination between objective markers, but then it's also like talking to the athlete and figuring it out. But because our job is uh, to put them in the best place to succeed. And um, I don't think anyone in the NBA can really do that without knowing and talking to the athletes. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. And I think like for me, one of the values of isometrics as well, or a couple of values is you're not getting huge amounts of DOMS from them in comparison to the level of like neuromuscular return you get from them. And I think the other nice thing as well is you can kind of do this session embedded testing where if you've got force plates and you can use them for the um, for the isometric exercise that you're doing for a strength purpose, you can also then pull data and build this kind of profiling library of that athlete through time, which which might become useful in the future for you know rehab benchmarks or just comparisons. So um, is that something that you I don't know you agree or disagree with? In any way, and I won't be offended if you do disagree. <laughs> no, 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 hundred percent, hundred percent. We and we actually, um, I love to, I love to integrate. I don't know if this is where you're going with this, but I love to integrate the force plate with training and kind of uh, not. And I'm not trying to be like you know, I'm not trying to be a trickster, but using that as part of training rather than like labeling it testing and then having guys think they're like lab rats, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And and you know we never got to really finish it, but um, you know Jeff Dolan, who was our assistant strength coach when I was in Phoenix, like we were kind of we were trying to figure out like what was the best potentiating uh, response or uh, method for for certain athletes because you know we um, you know Jeff really he he took this project and he ran with it, but you know he was finding that uh, you know the more powerful athletes. Uh, the faster athletes were, they responded well, better to, you know, fast, powerful potentiation uh, techniques, um, you know, like a med ball throw, or maybe even like a light Olympic lift. That's like super powerful. They were actually getting potentiation better from that than, you know, doing like a, a really hard overcoming ISO pull or really like a heavy, like trap bar deadlift. And then the people who responded really well to the heavy stuff were the really strong guys, the guys who have lifted. So it's almost like it's like our bodies want what we're what we've always done, <laughs> if that yeah. makes sense. Or like we want the strategy that we're used to or that we gravitate towards, and that potentiates potentiates our, our CNS. So it's an interesting, um, it's just it's an interesting uh, conversation for sure. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that you uh, talked to coaches or you've used quadrants and visuals to communicate with them previously. Um, do you ever kind of pull out the whiteboard marker and the quadrants with the players themselves? Oh yeah, hundred um, percent. That's actually one of my favorite ways to show, you know, using de-identified data and being able to hone in on. Maybe I'm looking at force plate numbers, and I'm trying to explain to them you know, based on people at their body weight or at their position, you know, on a plot, just showing them, hey, uh, you know, this is why. I want, uh, you know, let's just say eccentric duration, right? I want to set eccentric duration to get better. And then you can show him like, you know, on the plot, like this is you and this is everybody else. Right. And it, uh, 
you know, I don't think they would appreciate as much like going into like the quadrant system and it's in like the way that I wrote about it in the book with like strength, strength, speed, repetition, and uh, recovery. Like, I don't think they would appreciate that as much, but they were, they really appreciate the performance stuff. So anytime that I can, you know, plot data and show the athlete and, and make them actually um, connect with it, I think that that's big, that's big time. And, and they definitely respond well to it. I think again, like scatter plots and quadrants are a great way to communicate data. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in the book that you've, uh, you've worked on some or worked in some teams where game day has been perhaps in a quadrant free. So uh, low volume and high intensity versus other teams where they've been at quadrant four for high volume and high intensity. Uh, I've no doubt that players themselves fall into fluctuations within both teams um, or the teams that you're referencing in a league like the NBA, where uh, game day wearables are not uh, not permitted, how do you personally navigate, you know, monitoring volume and intensity and assort players into quadrants accordingly? So I've done it. I've done it in a bunch of different ways, and I don't even think I've come to like my favorite way. And like, and I try. I think. Um, well, I'll tell you what I've done, and I'll tell you where I currently am with it. So, you know, I, I used to. I, I use, we use connect. Well, I've used Connexon catapult. I've used all the, the different LPS GPS systems and, you know, I've done it that way where you're using actual like external load monitoring and for everything. And, um, we actually do have in game, we have a uh, second spectrum cameras, which give you, uh, it's like a high sampling rate camera that gives you, you know, loads basically. And, um, because you're getting like XYZ coordinates, you can actually calculate, you know, what the distances are, what the speeds are for each player. So if, if you do have that and you are monitoring in practice, it's a pretty good way of keeping apples to apples. So if you want to go that route for doing your volume and intensity tracking, you can do that. Um, what I started to find at, when I was doing that was it was, it was lining up really like the volumes and intensities that I'm seeing when I, when I use uh, LPS and accelerometers, like I'm seeing the same volumes as if I just look at total time on feet it correlates very, really high. Like, I mean, it's not like a 1.0 correlation, but it's, you know, it's around 0.9. And for what we need in our environment, I think um, for planning purposes, I think using just total time does a really good job because when guys are on the floor, they're working and they're, and eventually that, you know, you know what I'm saying? But, um, and then for intensities, you know, I've used RPEs. I've used, uh, I've actually just looked at, like, I think what I'm doing now that I really like is just using, you know, putting you on the right side of the quadrants if you've done live play on that given day. So anything live or at like a high speed, like a game speed, it would that would automatically make you a three or a four. And then if you aren't going live that day and there's no really reaction to what we're doing out there or, um, you know, react, reacting to teammates or whatever, then you're going to be on the one or two, which is on the left side of the graph. So um, I love using total time on feet as a volume metric. And then I love using uh, live play or non-live play as a way to gauge. And the reason I like this is it gets the job done. If you were to if you were to uh, plot all the external markers that you get from an LPS system, it's going to line up pretty damn close to what you do when you just conceptually think about time and then live play. Um, and then the other reason I like it is because it's easy to communicate with the coaches because coaches like they don't know LPS nor should they. They shouldn't know like 
all about GPS. I, I think they, they're so focused on their sport and like the tactics and the tech, technical aspects. Um, you know, you want to talk to talk when you talk to them, you want to talk about like real simple sports science concept concepts that can, uh, I think you can really adapt and change in your environment. And, and I found time to be a really good one to use. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm wondering is if you ever, um, when you're watching the game unfold, you think about the game itself as a three or four, like, you know, does a, as a random example, does a game with uh, tighter defense, you know, more marking and more maybe anaerobic stress, does that, does that push a, an athlete into say a quadrant uh, four or, you know, does the, do you ever kind of think about the the type of game and how it unfolded in front of you? Yeah. Uh, hundred percent. Always. That definitely affects things. Um, and that might, that might be one of the reasons that we, you know, we choose not to lift a player after a game or, or whatever. And then we talk about this in the book. We have, you know, I labeled it the no zone, right? Um, I, you know, when it's too high volume, too high intensity, does it really make sense to lift after a game? Or does it really make sense to, you know, the next day have a quadrant two when maybe it should be a one? Um, what I what I like to do too is, you know, based on historical data or even like data from, you know, if you're just looking at league-wide information um, on like upcoming contests and when you're when you're scheduling quadrants and you're, you know, you're collaborating with the coaching staff to make sure that, you know, you're planning your practice days in, in the right way or the most effective way, knowing which the which matchups coming up are the most strenuous, which ones are the most taxing. Like, you know, maybe you're playing a really, really like tall and long um, physical Milwaukee Bucks team right? Like they're, they're solid. Like they just, uh, they're bruisers. They've got a ton of uh, big physical players and, and maybe the, the way you play them and the way you prepare for them could be different than the way you play somebody else. So, um, you know, physically every team has, has different uh, effects on, on, on the plan. So if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. That makes complete sense. Um, you know, as uh, applied sports science nerds or, or gym rats, we can we can write the ideal plan and program and even go as far as you and create a, a system or a model. But sports schedules, especially the NBA, can be chaotic um, and coaches can occasionally have a tendency to change the schedule uh, on the fly or a short no- <clears throat> or a short notice. How do you you know, how do you personally kind of take your system or or any t- training system that is as well and maybe bend it around this realistic uh, obstacle that we get? I think uh, the beauty in the system is really uh, it's 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 a decision matrix at the end of the day, and the 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 point the, the fact that it's a decision matrix that really asks two questions like like okay is it is it you know what's the volume is it high or low okay cool it's high great that puts me um, at the top of the graph right and then okay now what's the intensity okay boom then okay it's it's high great I'm at the right of the graph so I'm in a quadrant four. High and high. It, it's really as easy as having that conversation with a coach um, leading into a practice or when you're planning, when you're planning weeks or days ahead of time, you know, when you sit down with the coaches and you say just those two simple questions, like, what do you think? Is that going to be high intensity or is it going to be low intensity? And just having that question really, it's so easy. And obviously there's nuance and you can take this and be super like granular with this. Like I, I made this point in the book, like, this is simple when you really break down like this, but you can, when you master it, like you can get more complicated and you can add more variables. But 
I think if you do these really, really simple things first and you do them well, I think it has the biggest carryover. I think it has, you know, it, it affects 90, 95% of the equation. So, um, so yeah, that, that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at there. Yeah. One of the things I'm curious, cause obviously you've, you've put hours into this book, but where do you personally turn away from this book? Where do you turn for your kind of, um, your development? I'm just wondering like what, what you see as like, um, uh, up and coming trends and I hate using the word trends but like up and coming technologies maybe or um, I'm just curious like what kind of things do you look out for for your own development now I I don't um, you know like don't take offense to this but I don't I don't listen to a ton of uh, like sport or performance related podcasts mistaken. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but um it's, it's not that I don't like them. It's just uh, like where I'm at now, I, I really like to, I've always liked architecture and, and um, I wanted to be an architect when I originally went to school. That's kind of what I wanted to, to go into. Um, so I love, I love reading about architecture. I love looking at like the pictures. I love, I, I'm an artist. I t- I t- like I said earlier, I, I loved, I love fine art. I love to draw. Um, so that's where a lot of my free time goes and it kind of goes into, I think it, it shows itself in what I do for a living. Um, but, um, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe this isn't a good answer. I, I, I like, I like artists. <laughs> I pay attention to art and artists and, um, I try, I try to think, uh, non-sports related and see if I can bring anything within, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's valuable because otherwise, you know, if everybody only looks at the familial kind of um, familiar sources that we've got already and, and everyone else is doing that, we just create an echo chamber at the end of the day. So I think if you can pull outside inspiration into any industry, it's probably a, a beneficial, um, you know, approach to go with. Yeah, no, 100%. And and I do like, um, it kind of became, it's it almost became like cliche and like kind of a joke, but like, I feel like everybody in performance now reads Nassim Taleb, <laughs> yeah. but, but, um, I actually, I, I, when I started reading him like five or six years ago, that kind of set me off reading people who are similar to him and, you know, paying attention to, to people in other industries and, and how they, what their philosophy towards, um, things like stress, which he talks about in, in like anti-fragile his book, um, I really like people who are even involved in Silicon Valley, I think who are trying to think laterally, think outside of the norm. I, I've kind of gravitated towards a lot of those people like Naval Ravikant puts out great, you know, information on just his, his thinking process and um, really building his life and building his, his wealth of knowledge. Like I, I like listening to people like Naval, um, you know, Peter Thiel, these, these people who are just beasts in the Silicon Valley sphere. I just like how they think and how they think outside the box. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm anywhere close to their, <laughs> their level. Um, but I think just kind of their ethos and, and what they're about, that's what I try to, to kind of do daily. So just looking outside of strength conditioning for answers. Daniel, I'm really aware of, uh, of, of time and I know you're in Vegas at the moment. Um, not partying, but with work. Um, Where's the best place for people to follow you? And, and within that as well, where can people find this book? Yeah, so you can uh, follow me uh, Instagram. I'm at Daniel Bove. Uh, so I, I post a lot of stuff about, you know, a lot of stuff about the book, but then, you know, kind of philosophy and like um, how I view the training process. But then also on Twitter at Daniel Bove. And then you can buy the book at athleteframework.com. 
Um, so feel free to check it out. Cool. Perfect, mate. And we'll, um, we'll link that all in the show notes. So uh, we'll make it easy for people to find you and find the book. So, uh, mate, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, I know you're from Philly originally. So when you're in town, we'll have to grab a beer. But um, yeah, appreciate your time today. Hey, I'll be there next week. Let's, let's get together. Ah, uh, Perfect. Let's do it. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. Cool. Cheers, mate. Big thanks to Daniel for coming on today's show. I very honestly enjoyed reading The Quadrant System. And something that I found an excellent feature of the book is the illustrations and diagrams that Daniel uses consistently to communicate complex ideas, but in a very simple and digestible, but also meaningful way. So regardless of what level you're working at currently in performance, I really do think this is a refreshing must read. So great job there by Daniel. I hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast. We have some new and exciting projects coming out over the next few weeks, which we're looking forward to. Head over to Inform Performance on Instagram or at InformPod on Twitter to catch updates on our social media channels. Or head over to InformPerformance.com to find more episodes, articles and also news. You're listening to the Inform Performance podcast. Catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.